This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Hi, my name is Van Badham. I'm a columnist for Guardian Australia. Bonjour, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Generation Less, where we will be discussing with the rather fabulous Jennifer Rayner, Australia's new inequality. For many years, we have, of course, built an understanding of economic inequality that was built on class, that was built on exclusion on the basis of ethnicity or culture. We've got an understanding of why the haves have so much more than the nots, uh, based on uh, traditional metrics for establishing these things. The new phenomena is, of course, that of intergenerational inequality. Does one generation have more than another? What does it mean to be a young person? Is the future bright or was the past much better? Before we answer these questions, I'd like to make the most important acknowledgement of all, and that is today, this discussion about who we are as a people and a nation will be taking place on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And as somebody visiting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, I pay my respects to Elders past and present for standing today on a land that was stolen, never ceded. And certainly, if you run into Andrew Bolt at this conference, please let him know that. <laughs> I made the exact same point at the session I did earlier because the truth is always worth repeating. Jennifer Rayner is something of a young, bright light. Her book, Generation Less, appears in the context of what is already a spectacular academic and public policy career, with a master's degree in public policy from Macquarie, a PhD in political science from ANU. Jennifer has already been a federal government advisor. She's worked for UNICEF, lived in Indonesia, and has a comprehensive experience of policy understanding that has played out at the highest levels of Australian political influence. She's also just turned 30. Hi, my name's Van Batam and I feel like an underachiever. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage the rising generation, Jennifer Rayner. Thank you. So yes, I was born in 1986 and I turned 30 not that long ago. At that age, my mum and dad were settled, prosperous parents of three. They were homeowners. They were tenured workers, tucking away super and long service leave. They were the possessors of both everyday and special occasion cutlery. <laughs> so naturally enough, they were the benchmark that I instinctively set my expectations against. Growing up in that striving suburbia of Hawke and Howard, my friends and I never doubted that we would lead lives more prosperous, more secure than theirs. I was confident that we'd continue that golden trend tracing back to the Great Depression yet another Australian generation to enjoy more wealth and more opportunity than our parents did. But I'll tell you what, today I'm not so sure. When I look around the bar on a Friday after five, I see young people squeezed by creeping pressures that are not of their making and largely beyond their control. I see 20-somethings living out an ever-extending adolescence as the building blocks for a stable, secure life get further out of reach. I hear treacle, treacle black jokes and brittle laughter about retiring beyond 50 and, and renting beyond the grave. I see my generation becoming the first in over 80 years to go backwards in work, wealth and well-being. So I've come here today with a warning about the waves of demographic, economic and social change that are now breaking over today's young Australians. Left unchecked, these changes will lead to rising intergenerational inequality in this country. Just as we've seen a growing gap between the rich and the poor in recent decades, we're beginning to see young and old pull apart in ways that will wear at our communal bonds. Now, if you're uncomfortable taking my word for it as a young woman, allow me to deliver you the same message from an old white man instead, because I know how people like that. In February 2014, the leading economist and Deloitte Access Economics Director Chris Richardson told the Australian Financial Review, there is a stunning generational unfairness in our settings, and all those disengaged young Australians need to wake up to the fact they're being massively screwed. It isn't just young Australians who need to wake up to this fact. It's all of us. This country is so busy talking about planning for the looming tsunami of our frail aged that we're letting entire generation fall behind. If we don't think harder about building a future for the old and the young, 
my generation will be just the first of many to face lives of shrinking opportunity. Now, I don't believe Australians want that. I think we want to be a community that does right by all its people, a country that can take care of the old, but without making second-class citizens of the young. To do that, first we need to recognise where we're going wrong. Then we have to find the will to fix it. In the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to take you on a lightning tour of the growing gaps between young and old, so you can see where things are going wrong for us at work, in our wealth, and also with our wellbeing. If you leave here thinking that my generation are a pack of whingers who don't know how good they've got it, you won't have been paying attention. <laughs> a truly equal Australia is one where young Australians have the same opportunities to build stable, secure lives as our parents and grandparents enjoyed before us. The alternative, and the way we're going right now, will see young people become bystanders to this country's prosperity as older people claim an ever greater share of its building blocks. But it's not too late to turn this around. So, let's talk about how we do it. The foundation for a good life is a good job, so let's start with work. Here's some things I gained in five years juggling crap jobs in restaurants and bars across Canberra. A revulsion for the milky sweet smell of Baileys. The ability to count up to ten in Thai. Nong song sam si ha hok jet pad gausib. The ability to tell which customers are likely to be waiting for you in the car park at the end of your shift. Some things I did not gain. Uh, more than $3,000 in superannuation. Sick pay. Permanent work or transferable skills. These crap jobs are increasingly all that young Australians can get as we struggle to navigate our first steps into the jobs market. The economics editor of The Australian, David Uren, has written that it is now harder for young people to get reliable, well-paid work than at any time since the early 1990s. And back then, there was a vast recession on. Many of the doorways that our parents and grandparents passed through on their way to full employment have been closed and bricked up for good. Now, that's because the world of work is changing. Everybody knows that. But while the changing nature of work affects us all, not all of us have been equally affected. In fact, the work gaps that have always existed between green workers and grey ones have widened out significantly over the last 30 years. Taken together, underemployment, casualisation and much slower wage growth risk creating a working underclass of the young. Back in 1978, when my parents were leaving school and starting to look for work, fewer than one in 30 young Australians said that they were underemployed. Today, that figure stands at one in six. It's one in six young people who say they can't get the hours they need to make a decent living. And underemployment goes hand in hand with casual work, and there's been an explosion of this in Australia over the last 25 years. Unfortunately, though, it's been almost entirely concentrated in the under-25 workforce. The number of young people working casually in Australia today has jumped from 34% in 1992 to over 50% today. Over that same time, the proportion of people working casually in their later years has barely moved. Now, those gaps that have opened up between young and old on underemployment and casualisation are worrying enough. But for the starkest illustration of the growing inequality, we simply need to look at wages. Thanks to Thomas Piketty and those Occupy Prats, you're probably aware that there's been a steady swelling of wage inequality in developed economies over the last few decades. But while there's been plenty of fiery debate about this growing gap between the rich and the rest, I'm yet to see anyone point out that wage inequality is also mushrooming between different age groups. The gap is opening up because over the last 20 years, wages have grown about twice as fast for people over 50 as they have for people under 25. In 1990, a 20-something worker who managed to get into the jobs market before that recession hit was earning about $750 a week in today's money. Now, it's not exactly high-rolling, but when you factor in that a worker in their mid-50s was only earning $220 a week more, seems fair enough. Skip ahead to 2013, and an under-20s worker is now earning about $940 a week. But their grey-haired colleagues have left them in their dust. Workers in their 50s now earn over $1,550 a week. As a result, that wage gap has opened out to over $600 a week. A fact that explains the success of all those god-awful 60s revival musicals, if nothing else. <laughs> now, there's never going to be a time when young Australians just starting out in work enjoy the same wages or security or conditions as more mature workers. It's just not how the jobs market works. But there was once a time, within my own lifetime, when the workplace gaps between young and old were far smaller than they are now. 
If we let those gaps continue to grow unarrested, young Australians could well end up as an underclass of workers. Insecure, unprotected and inadequately paid, teens and 20-somethings will be left looking on as the benefits of good work increasingly accrue to their elders. Plenty will also find themselves stuck as they age, with a lack of skills and opportunity locking them into the precariat for life. All right, strap in, because now we're going to talk about wealth and debt. That naturally brings us to the subject of housing affordability, a topic so divisive in Australia at the moment that I think we can officially upgrade it from barbecue stopper to Christmas lunch ruiner. <laughs> I don't own a house. I did, briefly, but my stint as a member of the propertied class ended a couple of years ago when, at the age of 28, I decided life as a suburban wife and mother was exactly as airless as Betty Friedan had described it. I left the house, and the husband with it, and uh, fled back to a rented flat in the inner city. We'd only been able to buy the place because a confirmed bachelor uncle of my ex's had died and left us an unexpected lump sum. Even then, the best we could do was a falling down 1970s three-bedder in the northern back blocks of Canberra, sort of suburb we'd more readily find meth than method traditionnel at the local shops. I won't pretend I was all that sad to leave the place behind. So, now I am back among the 60% of people aged 25 to 34 who bed down in the negatively geared nest eggs of grey-haired investors. 30 years ago, I'd have been well in the minority to still be renting at my age. But today, you have to reach far into the late 30s age bracket before you find more than half of the group owning their own home. And this is a relatively recent development, although we seem to have got quite used to it. In the 12 years since I first moved out of home, ownership rates among young Australians have plummeted. As we saw only a few weeks ago with the release of the latest Hilda survey data, home ownership is now at its lowest ever level among young Australians, with just 36% of people in their late 20s and early 30s having made it into the property market. As I'll talk about a bit later on, that directly affects the choices we make about things like partnering up, pushing out kids and putting down roots. But just as importantly, my generation's inability to get into the property market early is going to have lifelong repercussions for the amount of wealth that we can accrue. Those coming up after us are going to be even more financially dispossessed unless we act to fix the skews in the system that favour our property elders. Since 2004, the Australian Bureau of Statistics has been monitoring the net worth of people at different stages over the life cycle. That's the value of everything they own once all their debts and liabilities are taken into account. Household net worth for people under 24 grew by about $24,000 over the decade between 2004 and 2014. People in their mid-50s and early 60s saw their net worth grow by $286,000. Pretty respectable bump in anyone's book, no? My cohort? Yeah, we went backwards. People aged 25 to 34 are worth $500 less in 2014 than people the same age in 2004. There's a reason I still make my mum and dad pick up the tab when we go out to dinner. The unspoken compact that young people will enjoy more prosperous lives than their parents is breaking down. And that break starts with us. If you want more proof, consider this. Between 2004 and 2014, net worth for everybody over 45 grew by more than the total net worth for people under 24. As a result, the wealth gap between young and old has widened out by hundreds of thousands of dollars, from about $860,000 in 2004 to over $1.2 million in 2014. The price of housing plays a huge story, a huge part in the story of growing wealth gaps. It almost single-handedly explains why my cohort has gone backwards compared with people the same age a decade ago. As buying a home at 35 instead of 25 has lifelong consequences. For a start, it likely means a decade longer paying off that mortgage as you age. The average Australian mortgage today is about $461,000. Now, that's a sum that would take two people earning an average income, paying 20% of that, about 20 years to pay off before you factor in interest. Take out that mortgage at 25, and you can be debt-free by the time you're 50, while having owned an asset that's jumped in value to boot. But wait until you're 35 or 40 or later, and you're still going to be paying that mortgage when you start planning your 60th birthday party. Not having property to your name is also a problem if you want to start a business or do anything else that requires major borrowing too. Building your own company or investing in someone else's idea is another way that people in previous generations, 
my mum and dad included, have grown wealth over their lifetimes. But if a bank won't lend you the seed money because you've got nothing to secure it against, then that source of wealth creation slips away too. I don't think this point comes up enough when talk turns to the social and economic impact of higher house prices. So the problem isn't only that my generation has gone backwards in wealth today because of our inability to get into the property market. An equally pressing predicament is that this is actually going to hamper our ability to become financially secure over our lifetimes. Now, the other side of that wealth story is debt, and today's teens and 20-somethings are lugging more of it than ever before. Huge house prices are, again, at the centre of that story, but rising education costs and the easy availability of credit are also part of the problem. Having been on both sides of that property divide, I'm really actually not sure which is worse. It does worry me that I'm steaming into my 30s without any way to secure my financial future. But for the two years that the ex and I did own a house, the thought of our piled debts never failed to cause me chest constrictions. The place cost us almost $420,000, despite one end of the kitchen rising fully four centimetres above the other because the house was slowly sinking into the claggy backyard. It faced the street on these flaking wood-framed windows, and once an entire section of those frames came away in my hand when I reached to stop from falling down the front step. The hallway between our bedroom and our living room had a snaking crack in it, almost wide enough for me to fit my index finger into. Everyone says buying your first home is hard. Everybody knows you have to take on a burden of debt to do it. But the quantum of that debt is vastly different for young mortgagees today than it was for people in previous generations. This means that those previous generations had a financial breathing room that few young mortgagees feel today. That's because in 1985, the average home loan held by a first home buyer was about $83,000 in today's money. Today, that average is up to $308,000. That much debt wouldn't be such a problem if the price of everything else was rising alongside it. But unfortunately, it's just not. In particular, wages are now growing at their slowest rate on record, and inflation is falling through the floor, which means that those debts are going to hang around our necks much longer than they did in previous decades. The excessive price of housing has created this drowned-if-you-do, starved-if-you-don't situation for today's young Australians. Those who are locked out of the property market are seeing opportunities for wealth creation recede off into the distance. But those who can get across the threshold are suffering a huge hit to their disposable income today and for the foreseeable future, and all for much less gain than people in previous generations enjoyed. Now, that situation's only exacerbated by the fact that my friends and I have debts our parents were blissfully unencumbered with when they were still fit and firm. Chief amongst these is student debt. In 2004, under-25s had an average of $3,500 more debt than their parents. Today, that average is up to $6,500. Now, that might not seem like much, but remember that's an average across the entire age group, and only about 40% of people go to university these days. So the debt gap between people who've been on a university campus in the last 10 years and those free-riding Whitlam graduates now in their 50s and 60s is actually far greater. And God help people coming up after us if fees are further increased or deregulated entirely, as this government seems determined to do. Now, lest you think there is nothing I don't blame older generations for, there is one part of the debt problem that we have to take responsibility for. We have a problem with credit. I won't pretend we don't. Long dead are the days my mum and dad used to speak of when furniture or tech would be carefully paid off in fortnightly instalments before being paraded proudly home. Now anything you want is just a pay wave away, and far too many of us tap and go into debt. Consumer research from Roy Morgan found that young Australians under 25 roll over an average of $2,500 in credit card debt from month to month without paying it off. When researchers from Victoria University surveyed the financial habits of young Melburnians, they found that people in their 20s, uh, over 40% of them, said they rarely or never paid off their credit card at the end of the month. And over half of those who had a credit card also reported regularly maxing it out, which is a bit of a worry considering the average uh, credit limit was $4,500. So yes, we have a problem. We rack up debts bigger than we can afford to pay off each month, and we really shouldn't. But there are some important social factors that I would argue underpin our relationship with credit. For a start, it's now crazily accessible and seemingly so cheap, until you read the fine print. 
Since the deregulation of Australia's banking sector in the late 1980s, it's become progressively easier to get loaded up with plastic. One of the reasons that people in previous generations weren't such big debtors was because few people were actually offering them credit. I really doubt my mum and dad would have been such patient lay-by payers if they'd had the option to bring their booty home right away. But now you can get credit anywhere, with the bar set as low as, can you afford a couple of bucks a month for the minimum repayments? There's also the fact that, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, far too many young Australians are struggling through with work that is insufficient, insecure, or both. When that's the case, credit becomes a necessary stopgap for smoothing out holes in your weekly budget or dealing with big expenses that loom out of the blue. The point I'm making is that our credit dependence is a symptom of some bigger economic problems. And those underlying maladies won't be cured simply by cutting up everybody's cards. I didn't grow up thinking that I would be packer wealthy as an adult. I didn't even really expect sports star with a serial endorsement contract level of comfort. If it had to say at nine or 15 what I thought my future looked like, I probably would have described a life a lot like what mum and dad had. A house big enough to 10 teenagers in, a new car every five or so years, a regular but not too flash holiday house at the beach over Christmas. Naturally, at nine, I would have also said that future house needed its own tap floor and light rig. And that 15, that I would have traded it all for a cardboard box as long as it wasn't in Canberra. But I certainly believe that the basic template of that life, with its steady accrual of wealth and stability, would have been within my grasp by now. It isn't for me, and too many other people my age, and that's something that all Australians should be worried about. If young and old pull apart in wealth, the end result can only be a less connected community. And we joke about technology divides when we watch our grandparents try and manipulate their iPhone, and we loll at our mum and dad when they can't make sense of today's youth slang. But wealth inequality creates real divides. It separates people across cities, and it opens fissures in their habits, their tastes, and their interests. It breaks down understanding, and it creates jealousies. Much more pragmatically, leaving young people to fall behind in wealth goes against the prevailing idea that we should be as financially independent as possible when we're old. The Intergenerational Report, the Murray Financial Systems Inquiry, the Rethink Tax Discussion Paper, every official word from government says Australia can't afford to keep shelling out for this growing cohort of the grizzled aged. But if we can't start building wealth when we're young, we simply won't have enough of it not to rely on government when we're old. Well, this seems pretty bleak at this point, doesn't it? Stay with me a moment, because there's one more important issue that has to be looked in the face. Younger Australians are falling behind in our well-being, as well as at work and in our wealth, as the impact of these trends affect how we live, love, and fit into our communities. Spend time with people my age, and it can start to feel like being happy and contented is also a perk reserved for others than us. In my late teens and early 20s, I had a very dear friend who was into self-harm, like the serious kind. She was beset with many anxieties, and when things all got too much, she would take a Stanley knife and drag it across her paper white inner arms until they blossomed red. Her upper thighs were scarred like a Papuan Highlander's too. She said the cutting felt like getting laid and lifting off in an aeroplane all at once. She said it felt like peace. I think of her often these days, actually, when talk amongst my peers turns to the many pressures that are piling onto us today. As messed up as her chosen method was, I know of plenty of under-30s who would identify with her desire for release. The world out there is darkening the domain inside our heads and dragging down our spirits. And why wouldn't it? The globe is warming around us, yet this useless government continues to stall on action to fix it. Privacy and rights are slowly being, sanctioned, uh, slowly being sacrificed on the gilded altar of security. Our state continues to sanction discrimination in love, that most basic expression of our humanity. You plunk meta-worries like these on top of the pressures I've already talked about, and unhappiness seems to me a pretty rational response. It's also the case that today's young Australians lack much of the private scaffolding that supports good well-being, like long-term partnerships, kids, community roots. Our parents disparage us as kidults determined to put off real life as long as possible, but they're wrong. Delaying the milestones of traditional adulthood is all but unavoidable when work and housing are insecure and the future's so uncertain. 
We're frankly, frankly, pretty fucking tired of being told that we're feckless, reckless, and failing at life when we're already paying such a price for the instability of our circumstances. The Department of Health reckons the prevalence of issues like anxiety and depression may be up to three times higher among young Australians than across the community as a whole. In a survey by the Australia Institute, young Australians were also more likely to report feeling lonely than any other segment of the community, with women in their late teens and early 20s reporting particularly high levels of not-so-splendid isolation. And things seem to be getting worse. In two surveys of mental health and wellbeing conducted a decade apart, the instance of anxiety, depression and substance abuse disorders increased more for people 25 to 34 than for any other age group. The proportion of people struggling with those issues when they're young jumped from one in five to almost one in four. By contrast, for people in their 50s, it held constant at about 15% across that decade. And like I say, why wouldn't my generation be sadder than our olds at the same age? By 30, my parents had a house that wasn't crushing them with debt, three kids, steady income, small stash of savings. Today, the data shows that too many young Australians are only beginning to acquire those things at the dawning of their fourth decade. It isn't just material comfort that my friends and I are missing out on because of this delay. Partners, kids, a sense of place that builds up over time from dozens of little and big interactions with your community, these are the struts that support good well-being, happiness, contentment. Our circumstances have kicked away those struts, and our well-being is wobbling pretty precariously as a result. Ultimately, we need to return some stability and security to young Australians' lives so that all of us have a chance to weave better bonds of connectedness. Importantly, too, our parents are going to have to ditch the kid-alt critiques and start thinking about the ways their choices are constraining ours. In May 2015, the current Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Martin Parkinson, got to his feet to deliver the graduating address at the University of Adelaide. Born in the late 1950s, a 20-year veteran of the public service, a graduate of several of Australia's best universities, establishment figures don't come much more established than Martin Parkinson. This is what he told the bright, accomplished young men and women who sat before him on the cusp of their adult lives. My generation has failed you, despite having benefited from massive growth in living standards, income and wealth. We rode the benefits of others' reform efforts and thought that success was our doing. In the process, we conflated self-interest with national interest. We lost sight of the big picture and applauded the things that made me better off, irrespective of the cost to others in our community or to future generations. Your generation is at risk of being the first in modern history whose living standards will be lower than those of their parents. And the longer we wait to address today's challenges, the greater the damage willfully being done to future living standards. I don't think a more honest set of sentences has been spoken by an Australian public figure in a decade at least. Parkinson was prepared to face up to something we all need now admit. Things can't go on as they are. Young Australians are being battered by demographic, economic and technological headwinds that will only gather pace in the years ahead. Our current national settings provide little in the way of shelter from those headwinds. Often, in fact, they make them worse. We're seeing the development of a lopsided Australia where young and old live differently. Good jobs, comfortable wealth and the well-being that comes with both are increasingly being concentrated in the gnarled, arthritic hands of older Australians. Meanwhile, younger Australians are being forced to live with less, crappier work, less wealth and worse well-being. That inequality is already a reality for my generation. I can't stress to you enough that we carry the weight of it heavily. We experience the unfairness daily in the gap between our means and the milestones of traditional adulthood. We sense it in the divergence between our aspirations and the opportunities in front of us. It's like we're the latecomers to some great national feast where the guests who arrived before us won't share even the dregs of their wine. If we don't do something about the problems I've laid out here, those coming after us will know deeper inequality still. Now, I said at the start that an equal Australia would be one where young Australians have the same opportunities to build stable, secure lives as our parents and grandparents enjoyed before us. It's not so big an ask, but given current circumstances, it's going to take some big changes to achieve. Young and old Australians alike would have to have a hand in bringing about those changes. 
So to those of you who are here from those older generations, we don't hold you personally responsible for the problems we're now facing. We know you didn't do this all intentionally or with malice. You just grabbed with both hands the opportunities that were in front of you. You had timing and plenty of luck on your side. But as the damaging impact of current trends on young Australians becomes increasingly apparent, we will hold you accountable for whether you throw up obstacles to change or stand with us in making it. And for those of you who can hear your own life experiences reflected in my words, frankly, we shouldn't rely on them. It's very likely we're going to have to design, fight for and deliver those big changes ourselves. Mum and Dad aren't going to be sweeping in to sort it out and kiss it better this time. Our default positions are cynicism and snark, but being a jaded smartass never fixed anything. Neither did disengagement or despair. Believe me, I well understand the temptation to throw your hands up and say things are stuffed beyond repair. I've felt that tug of fatalism myself. We've got every right to be angry and frustrated and disappointed about the way things have turned out for us. But not one thing will change until we channel those burning, bitter gut reactions into tangible acts. If we're going to build a fairer future for ourselves and coming generations, then we need to get involved. And that starts with believing that it's possible to bring about change through the institutions we have in front of us. Contrary to what you often hear, they're not broken. They're just run by people who have a good incentive to put other people's interests ahead of ours. So join a political party, go to a hearing, make a submission, show up. Above all, let go of this idea that there's something lame about caring too much. What's truly feeble is whinging without being willing to act. Because change only gets made when we take responsibility for making it. Tackling inequality of any kind isn't easy. There'll be spats and tantrums on the way as those who've conflated self-interest and national interest are forced to recognise the difference once more. But we'd be failing future generations just as much as those in the past have failed us if we decided it was all too hard. So, as that former US president with great hair and a bit of a fetish for movie star blondes once said, let us begin. Jennifer Rayner, everybody, and I believe you're doing signings of this book in the foyer afterwards. If you want to read it, it's very good. Um, now, I'm going to ask Jennifer a couple of questions, but I'm going to encourage you to ask her questions as well. We have two microphones, one and two. If you want to start queuing up now to make sure a question gets in, that would be fantastic. Be aware, I'm not as polite as Tony Jones. If anybody tries to make a comment, I, instead of ask a question, I will make everybody else in the room hate you. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the way, those of you who um, are social media literate, which I presume is everybody, if you're having fun with Twitter, the hashtag is FODI, Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Now, Jennifer, I'm going to play a bit of, of devil's advocate because I'm a shade, merely a few months, I suppose, older than you. <laughs> and I find... I find the conversation around the aspiration to wealth of young people quite confronting. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, don't you think this is, you know, this, this sense of loss based on particularly home ownership is actually a, a, a generational phenomenon as opposed to a generational trajectory? Because I look at my own family, and my family was still living in poverty when they emigrated to this country three generations ago. They were itinerant shearers, they got jobs in retail and the service industry. There was no expectation of my grandparents to own property. They had come from cultures where, you know, the working class and the underclass didn't. And my family only transitioned out of poverty because my grandfather fought in World War II and was a recipient of the War Service Homes Act, which was how a lot of Australian families actually built, uh, you know, the, the properties that they lived in, was through low-interest loans provided on released land for returned service people. And that house, that was transacted generationally with implicit family relationships based on the transfer of property. And in working-class families, traditionally, you know, many generations will live in the one property and a, and a transaction is made for children who take on caring responsibilities later in life, that you move back in with your parents and care for them to death and then you inherit the house. And that's certainly how I'm going to approach home ownership. I've never gotten a mortgage because I will look after my mother as she's dying and provide care for her in that house, in that asset. 
So for someone like me, I look at, well, why don't we have homes? Why don't we have mortgages? It's a very middle class and very bourgeois materialistic aspiration. Do you think there's an unreal expectation? Do you think it's just a new cultural phenomenon? Do you think there are elements of, um, of, of an implicit classism in this debate around home ownership in particular? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point that there have always been people in Australia who would have been priced out of any property market, for example. And there have always been people who were only able to um, attain some of those markers of traditional wealth through intergenerational transfer. I guess the point that I'm making in the book, though, is that, and, and you've sort of illustrated it to some extent there, which is that since the Great Depression, what you have actually seen is, is every generation being a little bit more well-off than the last. And partly, for example, through government policies, so post-Second World War, you know, soldiers who served who were then able to um, have land and build houses on it and that sort of thing and get educated as well. John Curtin, my favourite, thank you. <laughs> Uh, but what that has meant is that every generation in Australia, essentially since the Great Depression, has been better off than the last. And you can talk about individual cases, but in broad terms of averages across the community, that is what's happened. And what I'm concerned about now is that that is breaking down. And when you look at the trajectory for young people today, the opportunities to grow, whether it's wealth or whether it's to have a good job or, as I say, to actually experience the kind of quality of life that comes with any of those things, is breaking down in a way which has, is disrupting a, a quite a long-term historical phenomenon. Can, is it possible to separate the, the accumulation of property wealth um, and the accumulation of other forms of social capital and look at them separately in regards to young people? Is, is it possible that, you know, the, the younger generation now is sort of property starved merely because older generations are living longer and holding on to property and not dying in a convenient way? <laughs> Um, well, if they're living in all five of their investment properties, that might be true, but uh, I think that's probably not the case. But how large a proportion of the older population do have their five investment properties? Uh, so there, I mean, I don't have the stats immediately to hand, uh, but there's some interesting data around on the uh, proportion of older Australians versus younger Australians owning, uh, well, having investment loans. And when you look at that data, it's very clear that it isn't younger people that are owning all of these investment properties that we have in Australia. Uh, it is those older generations. And it makes sense that that would be the case because these are people who bought their first house in, you know, the 1980s, the 1990s, have seen that asset grow very significantly in value and then have a means to continue expanding their portfolio off the back of that. Younger Australians just have absolutely no capacity to get into that, that racket, as I would say, in the first place. Separating the issues, though, I look at something like the, the level of attention that's paid to this particular kind of discussion about accumulation of material wealth. And I look at uh, the aspiration for education and the aspiration for universal health care and the pillars of the welfare state, that there will be a social safety net, that there's an entitlement to a future pension, that you shouldn't have to graduate from university or TAFE or any other kind of training or an apprenticeship with debt. Are young people fighting the wrong front to, to make these claims on property as an aspiration as opposed to looking at the continual erosion of their rights to quality of life mechanisms through welfare, education, health, etc.? Look, it's an interesting conversation to have, but I think if you asked most people whether they wanted, by the time they're old, to be in a position where they had to rely on the age pension versus being able to have a more comfortable um, retirement or older years because they'd had the capacity to build wealth independently over their lifetimes, I think the reality is that most people would prefer to be in that latter case. So it's very important, obviously, that we have a social safety net that exists, but I, I just don't know that that would be what people aspire to. And really, that's what I'm talking about. Everybody wants different things, potentially. And I think, you know, you and I would possibly disagree on, on some of the, what, you know, what counts as a good life. But in previous generations, there were broadly the same opportunities for people to pursue wealth and independence and stability through things like property or education. Uh, and younger Australians don't have those same opportunities now. And that's really the thing. I mean, you can turn your back on wanting to own a house if that's your politics or those are your values or, you know, you, you just have a completely different understanding of what a good life looks like. But the reality is younger people don't actually have the choice at this point. And we should be able to still have that choice because people in previous generations did. Talk to me about uh, jobs and entry-level jobs in particular, because I did an article for The Guardian this week, would be great if people read it, about <laughs> um, 
that was about uh, communities like Townsville, for example, where youth unemployment is just about to hit 20% um, across the country, and it was such a figure of the election, was seats like Gilmore, um, certainly out in Western Sydney as well, uh, Dobell on the central coast of New South Wales, all those seats in Western Tasmania, very high levels of youth unemployment and the erosion of the kind of unskilled labour jobs that people used to go into, mm. they became like a politically very powerful and um, hasn't it been an interesting week affecting issue in terms of the composition of our current parliament. Where do you see the opportunity for young people to organise in their collective interests around the creation of ongoing jobs? Mm. I think it's... <sighs> younger people need to be more involved in the political system as a whole because then that affects the ability for us to shape the conversation that gets had around things like uh, work or skills or training. So one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that over the last 20 years, we seem to have tipped the balance away from security for workers and towards flexibility for business. So it's become really important that business can offer people, you know, two-hour shifts or cut their penalty rates if that means that, you know, they have more flexibility and therefore they might be more profitable. And that balance seems to have we as a community seem to have accepted that that's the way it should be when the people who are most affected by that, those decisions, which is young people, are not part of the conversation to say, well, hang on, are we actually okay with that? Are we okay with where the balance sits right now? Um, so an example of a type of reform that might actually address that would be to tip the balance back a bit the other way and say, well, actually, we value security for workers as much as we value flexibility for business and we need to think about what that looks like to get a better balance. Uh, another example is in terms of work creation or jobs is uh, skills and training. And I really worry that we don't do anywhere near enough for younger people who don't go to university. So the 60% of young people who will never be in a lecture hall unless they're there to fix the heating, we don't do anywhere near enough to channel them into the kind of jobs and the kind of training that would allow them to have security over their working lives. And in particular, apprenticeships, I think, is one of the most important areas where we could be giving young people more skills and then a pathway into a good job. But when we have a political system where the people who are most affected by change are not actually taking an active part in it, it's very hard for those discussions to be had. Yeah, certainly. We might flick to questions. Do we have somebody up at microphone number one? Going to have a little bit of light. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, thanks so much for your talk. And my question for you is about the idea that in infinite economic growth cannot take place on a finite planet. And a lot of the ways that, you know, the 50-somethings of today accumulated wealth took place in a kind of capitalist, neoliberal framework, which has been, again, rife with a lot of problems. So in terms of what do you think is the role of dismantling these current frameworks? And do you think there's a place for that in the conversation about creating a fairer world for young people today? Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion and kind of because it's a philosophical one, I'm not sure there's, you know, a, a definitive answer to it. Um, partly, I guess, because of my academic background and, and the work that I do and the people that I hang out with, I don't actually agree with the argument that you can't have continuous growth. I think you can look at what types of growth you're talking about and certainly continuous growth based on uh, carbon coal-based energy generation, for example, is not permanently sustainable. Uh, but as technology changes, as we discover new ways of generating power, for example, or new resources, um, things like wind and wave power, then you can continue to generate economic growth in ways which don't do the same kind of damage as has previously been the case. Um, it's also the case that a lot of the growth that we're seeing in the economy at the moment comes in areas that continues to grow as population continues to grow. So like the two largest industries creating jobs are education and healthcare. Demand in those industries grows as long as our population is growing because when you have more people, you have more demand for healthcare and schools. So I guess I would start by saying I don't really agree with the idea that you can't have continuous growth. But obviously what we do need to have is growth which doesn't take from tomorrow at the expense of today which is why things like getting energy policy right so that we're not leaving younger generations and those coming after us a completely destroyed planet for the sake of a bit more growth today is really important. And it's something that I'm particularly conscious of as a mother of a five-year-old to think that we would still be kind of having a conversation now about coal being good for humanity as opposed to all the jobs we could create with, you know, uh, solar plants and wave power is kind of a bit ludicrous. 
the question raises a <laughs> the question raises a really interesting point about the neoliberal framework for policy making, which certainly do has dominated Australian public policy uh, for decades now. The first monetarist budget in this country happened in the 1970s, and certainly we've seen you know the triumph of neoliberalism spread across the globe and creating these unstable and exploitative economic conditions, the creation of the service job industry and the McJob phenomenon that afflicts young people. There's a concern that the, there's an inability to prosecute an alternative argument um, as a younger generation because the Cold War destroyed the language of an alternative and certainly the economic disaster of Sovietism was a pretty powerful lesson against command and control economies. I just want to ask, how many people in this room identify as socialists? And hands down, how many identify as social democrats? All right, so these are, you know, ideological positions that are explicitly critical and, and position alternatives to neoliberalism is part of what younger people need to develop, like a, a comprehensive ideological alternative and a language that goes with that. Um, if anything, I think it's probably the opposite, that we need to be less concerned about kind of ideological frameworks and more interested in what's the problem, what are the possible solutions. And the more that we look at things through the lens of isms, the more we actually butt up against this quite unhelpful um, confrontational frame, I suppose, which has dominated politics and um, history, really, uh, for about 50 years. I'm thinking about your isms better than my ism or my ism is more comprehensive than your ism. It's kind of not the point. The point is we have a bunch of problems that we need to solve and whether you find the solution in a way which could be considered, you know, market-based and therefore neoliberal or you find the solution through a more communitarian sort of approach and therefore, you know, the socialist social democrat tradition, it actually doesn't really matter to me and I don't think it really matters to a lot of young people. What matters is the problem and then the solution. Hi. Number two. G'day. How are you doing? <laughs> Um, following on from that last point, um, what are the drivers behind all this um, uh, inequality in Australia? Stiglitz identified the 1%, the guy that came up with that term. So what are the drivers here? And also as a near grizzled member of the X-Gen, um, the lack of home ownership and also increasing casualisation is surprisingly very, um, in my cohort, quite regular. It's, you know, instead of having full-time jobs, increasing casualisation. So I just want to know how the X-Gen is faring in the data that you've done. Yeah, sure. Um, so you're absolutely right. As I've talked about, these growing gaps between young and old have been widening for the last sort of 30 years or so. And what that means is that people your age as well, the sort of the generation above me, have also been caught up in that. And I guess the point that I would make is that things are getting progressively worse. So things were less good for you than for your parents. They are less good for us than they were for you. And they will continue getting worse for the generation after us and potentially, you know, my son's generation, unless we actually think about fixing some of these problems now rather than letting them continue to roll on. In terms of what the actual cause of these problems are, I don't think there really is any one. And, and that's kind of why it's such a challenge these days. There are a range of different policy prescriptions, policy changes that have been made over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, things like changes in the labour market in the 1980s under the Hawke and, Howard, um, Hawke and Keating government, uh, tax policy changes in particular, uh, things like superannuation, negative gearing, capital gains tax under the Howard government. And all of these trends are just coming together in a particularly problematic way. So it's not that there's kind of one silver bullet that would fix all this. It's that as the economy and our community is ageing and and uh, technology is changing the way that we work, it's becoming clear that our current settings are not sustainable if we care about closing that gap. And so it's about saying, here is a set of problems that we have. We need to think about fixing all of them rather than thinking there's one you know, group of people, for example, that we can take everything from and everything will be fine. It's, it's not the case. Right, number one. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on two policy options um, in terms of improving home ownership for young people. One is uh, an idea that's been suggested about giving young people the opportunity to use their superannuation to, uh, to, to buy a home. Obviously, uh, we're accumulating wealth um, from the moment we join the workforce, and is that an opportunity? Um, the second idea is, um, is, there, is there an opportunity to limit uh, foreign purchasing of Australian property um, further? 
Um, obviously, that, that's dramatically increased in, in, in recent years. Um, there are a lot more people who aren't Australian citizens who are buying Australian property. That would inflate the price of, of some types of, of property. Um, and I'm wondering whether limits, further limits on that would, um, would actually bring down the price of, of property. Sure. So I'm a huge supporter of the superannuation system in Australia. I think it's one of the um, kind of signature achievements of the former Labor government. And really what we need to be doing is expanding it. So we should, we're at 9.5% now in terms of the amount that's uh, compulsorily put aside. We should actually be growing that amount because... Um, young people need to continue to put aside as much as possible when they're young so that that can compound over time to build proper wealth for when we're old. Um, so I actually very strongly disagree with the idea of allowing people to access their super when they're young because housing is one part of the wealth story but superannuation is particularly for people my age who have, will be beneficiaries of that system all the way through, it's kind of the one bedrock that we can rely on to have some kind of stability and, and security as, we're old, as we get older. And once you start messing with that system, uh, I think you really underpin something which has been quite a significant public policy step forward. Um, and on the point about foreign ownership, the reality is we wouldn't have half the apartments that we have in this country if Chinese investors and investors from overseas weren't building them. So actually the contribution that foreign buyers have made is quite important to the housing market. And my personal view is that the checks and balances we have in place uh, get that balance right. Uh, and it's actually really important to recognise the contribution that overseas money makes to how our economy works. Okay. Uh, down here, number two. Uh, g'day, Van, and g'day, Jen. Uh, wonderful chat. Um, so, look, uh, like, recently with the rise of Pauline Hanson and uh, Donald Trump, it seems like more and more there's, like, a, a divide within kind of Western nations. It's often fixated on identity and has ugly kind of threads of racism running through it. You were talking about how we engage young people and get them more involved in uh, politics. Given that at the last election, it seemed like a huge number of people, especially young people, were less inclined to vote for either of the major parties. What do you think needs to change? How do we engage people in that process? So I, sh I should preface this by saying that I am a Labor person through and through, um, strong supporter of the party, work for the party. Um, so, you know, my, my answer might be slightly coloured by that. Having said that, um, I actually don't necessarily think it matters that much who young people turn out to vote for as long as they turn out and get involved in activism that advances what they see as their interests. Um, so I think there's sort of an implication in your question that voting for one of the minor parties and, you know, these newer parties doesn't represent what people see as an advancement of their interests. I think the more interesting question is why do they feel so kind of shut out from major party politics uh, such that they would then pursue voting for, you know, your Hansons or overseas the Trump and that sort of thing. And the question I think comes back to economic security is do people feel like their lives will be better off in the future or not? And when they feel like they won't be, then they look back to a time when they feel like things were better and they start thinking, all right, well, what was it about those times that meant that people like me could have a good life and the kind of life that I see being beyond me right now? And then I think it's sort of a bit of a... Uh, mistaken uh, view that it was because, you know, white people were better off than people of different colour or because we had less immigration or we had uh, less foreign investment. Uh, but I think it's understandable in a context of economic insecurity for people to start looking backwards. And so if we can address that insecurity, if we can make people feel like they have a stake in the community again, then a lot of that, I think, takes care of itself. Just out of curiosity, can you put up your hand if you are a member of a political party and you're here today? <laughs> yeah. To, um, to return to my earlier point, do you think, you know, I, I, taking on... There was a round of applause against the notion of isms, but I think, you know, is it entirely possible that young people don't join in organised political party processes or engage in political campaigns because they don't have the language of engagement? All of, the, all of you are here because you're interested in politics and economics and society and young people, yes? But you're, we only have a couple of hands of people who are actually involved in political parties and the engines that drive policy change in Australia in a democratic system. Why do you think there's such a disparity? Mm. 
It's one of the things that I talk about in the book in terms of solutions is actually sort of going back to better civics education at school. Because I think you're right, a lot of people actually don't feel like they understand the political process and therefore they don't feel like they have a stake in it and they don't see where they could fit in. So I actually think something that I would really like to see and it would be really useful would be a civics education that teaches people not just, you know, upper, lower house, 150 MPs, you know, here's the national anthem, but actually says this is how you make a submission to a Senate inquiry. This is what the legislative process is and here are the places that you can feed into it. Uh, those kind of practical ways of influencing the political system, which business does and unions do and people with a lot of money do. And I always find it quite funny um, when people say, for example, oh, why would you get involved in a Senate inquiry? Like, what's that going to do? And you say, well, the Business Council of Australia makes a submission to almost every Senate inquiry. And, you know, all of the uh, peak lobby groups for very large industries make submissions to all of those. And they do it because they know that it makes a difference, that having your voice heard in that room is the best way to actually guide the outcomes that get decided there. So I think giving people that language, giving people that literacy of the political system is something that we've moved away from in the last, particularly sort of 10, 15 years at school, where there's this whole sense that we need to go back to the, you know, um, three R's in education and we need this um, different type of system when actually one of the most important things that we could be doing at schools is giving people the literacy and the skill set for meaningful political engagement. And the literacy of ideas. Do we have... Yes, here? Down here. Yes. Oh, no, up the top. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to... There's a woman on the speaking list and I'm going to bump her up. <laughs> I'm very pleased to hear it. Um, I am very pleased that you're engaging with this idea as a you know, mother of three daughters around the age of 20, etc., you know, we've been trying to second-guess what's going to happen in the workforce and where they may actually find some remuneration for the training and skills that they have, and we're not as good at it, I hope, as they will be. But with the globalisation of the workforce, it's really hard to predict what kind of skills you'll be remunerated for working in Australia that's going to retain the kind of cultural um, status and, and enjoyment that we have, you know, and um, I'm very happy you said healthcare is a good area to be in because, you know, that's kind of the advice we've been giving our offspring. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I do worry and um, wonder and feel for people who've graduated in degrees in Australia when they're competing with, you know, equal graduates from other countries where, they, you know, they will outstrip the, the employment prospects because they can be, you know, employed so much more cheaply. So how do we do something about that? It's an interesting question. I, to go back to your original point about what will allow them to be, you know, well remunerated and secure over their working lives, I think one really important thing we have to come to terms with is the idea of having one career over your lifetime is, is pretty much gone. And this is true also for older Australians and particularly people who work in sort of manufacturing, mining um, industries which are now in transition. Um, continuous skilling and continuous training is going to have to be a much bigger part of what a career looks like and finding ways to continually build your skills and retrain potentially into something completely different. And the willingness to do that, I think, is going to be really important. In terms of your broader question about overseas workers, basically, is, is kind of your fundamental question. Um, there are many jobs in Australia which will always have to be done here. They can't be outsourced. And again, you know, health and education are really great examples of that. So I don't know that the worry is so much about, you know, importing that labour for the sake of it being cheaper. It's more about protecting the conditions and the rights that we have here. Because it should never be the case that you can bring people to Australia and have them work for less than an Australian would get paid. That's not who we are as a community. And holding the line on that sort of stuff really is both advantageous for our young people, but also for people who might want to come here and make a better life themselves. Um. We will take one last question. Uh, thank you for being patient. We have a minute 26, so make it quick, make it quicker. What are your thoughts around the new current economic environment? As you mentioned, you believe in like long-term continuous growth. However, currently we're entering a phase where the current inflation is set, um, is ever plummeting. And if you look at previous years in Japan, where they're actually experiencing deflation. What do you think about us actually following a similar path and not having these same job opportunities for the future? 
And you have 50 seconds to answer some questions. <laughs> oh, well, just a few things to unpack there. Um, no, obviously the, the economy is in a really tricky spot at the moment. And what's very interesting is that we're seeing continuous growth in something like GDP, but then things like income are falling off on the basis of that. So we're getting this really interesting gap that we haven't necessarily seen before. Um, what that means is we are in some ways in fairly uncharted economic territory in this country, certainly for the last 30 years or so. Uh, so I don't know what the answer is to making it better. What I think starts with, though, is understanding that we are in quite a different time and that the things that worked previously may not work now. And so we have to think really hard about different solutions. That was amazing. Well done, Jennifer Rayner. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.